Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and I'm excited to have a fellow German speaker with me on the line here today, although we will be doing the interview in English. Um, calling in from Switzerland, Mr. Dominic Schmidt. Welcome to the podcast, Dominic. Uh, hi, Marcus. Thanks very much to have me. No, it's great. Uh, and I'm looking really forward to digging into the topic here today. So just to frame this a little bit, um, Dominic has uh, had a very illustrious career um, coming in as a lawyer into the world of sports um, and worked for many years with ISL, Prisma, Kerr Sports Group, um, and later on in Infront. Um, always, during an era where in the, sort of in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, where a lot of interesting things happened in FIFA and many books been written about it. Um, so Dominic knows a bit of that dirt uh, in the right word of the true sense of the word. Um, and we'll dig a bit into this. And, uh, and then they spend the last 14 years really as an entrepreneur working in uh, different areas, uh, different businesses, uh, founder, uh, being founders and, and, and partners in it. And so I think we're going to have a nice interesting discussion about a little bit about the uh, – The, I don't know whether we should call it the good old days of football, but uh, um, and maybe the wrong word to use. Um, but uh, I want to I just uh, start off with, uh, and before we get into the usual, um, how you got into the industry, that one of the books uh, which had a dramatic impact on my view of sports was Andrew Jennings' book called Foul. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that, that he has a, f a couple of new ones out as well. And um, anyone who read this, uh, you know, will uh, will know what I'm talking about. We'll get it, but we'll get a bit more into this later. So let's get started a bit with, um, you know, how you got in the industry, and uh, you know what what brought you into the world of football later on. Yeah, sure. Um, I studied law originally and uh, qualified as a lawyer, passed the bar exam. Never intended to practice as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, I later on uh, got my MBA and ended up, that was in the very early 90s, uh, we were going through a recession, uh, companies were hiring on campus and everybody wanted to get into investment banking and hardly anyone got an offer, uh, but I did. Mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, I wasn't really sure whether this is my world. I felt kind of a peer pressure to accept the offer. I did it, went to work for JP Morgan, turned out to be a complete nightmare for me because I'm <laughs> simply not Mr. Corporate. Right. And uh, I was uh, in New York first, and then in, uh, they transferred me to London. And uh, I was sitting there in my apartment thinking, what the hell am I going to do next? Because that can't go on. Right. And so, so I was, I was, I was thinking what my options were, and I was less thinking about the desired position, rather a desired industry, which uh, would really fascinate me. And actually, I came to the conclusion that there were two. One was car industry, which I uh, wrote off immediately because I don't have an engineering background. Uh, so I would have ended up in the international tax department, and. <laughs> The other one was uh, entertainment industry in its broadest sense. That could have been anything from music uh, to films to, uh, to uh, including sports, because mm -hmm. uh, sports at that time for me was already part of the entertainment uh, industry, although many people didn't see it like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
So I saw I saw a, a, a job uh, published in a Swiss paper, which I had Neue uh, Zeitung, which I had uh, subscribed to uh, from London. Uh, that ISL was looking for a legal counsel. Mm-hmm. Where I thought, I thought, well, do you really want to go to work as a lawyer? Actually, do you think you're capable of doing that? Because I never practiced law. And secondly, assume that uh, because this was published, uh, that so many people would apply for that job that I wouldn't have a chance anyway. So mm-hmm. I applied. And uh, surprisingly enough, uh, was contacted and ended ended up getting the job. Right. Uh, that that's how I got into it. Uh, so I moved back to Switzerland. I started working at ISL, and I, at the beginning, I really loved it. It was great. There was uh, ISL at that time was really the uh, the Goliath in uh, in sports marketing because they had every major uh, event. Uh, that was uh, the World Cup of FIFA, of course, including every other uh, FIFA tournament. It included uh, the European Championships uh, and the European Cup events from UEFA. It included the African Cup of Nations from CAF. It included the Olympic Games. It included basketball and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because, I mean, you, I have my starting, my start was with ISA as well, although in a much, much smaller role uh, for a very short period time but anyone who's been is a kid of the 90s in our industry would know ISL but if you are coming in much later in the industry you might have never heard of it uh, but ISL was truly the giant um, in that space IMG was very different you know they were always more focused on athletes but when it came exactly. to owning the biggest global IP rights or being the representative of those it was ISL uh, and there was no one came anywhere close to it and so and with it as we all as we both know and you more know you even more than I Obviously, came a lot of um, well, big deals, but also plenty of controversial things around the world. Uh, talk us through a little bit your period of time and what you saw was happening. Uh, you know, it's, let's focus on the ISL part first. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, at the beginning, I was quite naive. I wouldn't have thought in my wildest dreams that uh, these things, which were uh, were obviously going on, would go on in any industry. Um, I worked as a, as I said, I started as a legal counsel. I negotiated major sponsorship contracts, mainly on the Olympic side, on the top program with uh, Chris Renner and Roger Marmont at the time. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, with uh, uh, Stephen Dixon and Ross Berlin on the football side. Yep. Ross was uh, my boss in the US. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I work very close, closely with, with Ross. He's a, he's a really good friend. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great. Guy. And uh, we enjoyed ourselves, really. We worked very closely on the, on the uh, World Cup in the US, 94. Yep. Uh, but at that time, uh, may I remind you, we're, we're talking exclusively marketing rights, not uh, media rights. Yep. So we were selling sponsorship. Uh, we put together the entire uh, uh, licensing program, which I think was probably at the time the largest merchandising program around a major global sports event that has ever been uh, put together. Hmm. And uh, when Ross, after World Cup, left, he decided to join uh, the Writers' Cup. That's right. I. Uh, uh, Stephen Dixon uh, took 
me to replace Ross, and uh, so I moved to the operative business from uh, uh, from the legal side and became the VP football of ISA. And I had there basically my, my my biggest project there was I was in charge of uh, Euro '96 in uh, in England, which was yeah. probably the best tournament uh, I ever experienced in, in the sense of getting on with the organizing committee. We it was a, the it was a great tournament. Germany won it. So it can't be a bad tournament. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, then. Uh, and, and also the African Cup of Nations in 96 uh, fell into my responsibility. Uh, we had a little bit of a hiccup with Papa uh, Diak at the time who represented us in South Africa. He was another I good friend, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I know some, Papa very well. Funny, it's some funny stories. He made private deals on the side. And uh, Stephen Dixon almost had a heart attack during the opening ceremony when these huge Coca-Cola banners appeared because uh, all these stages had were supposed to be entirely advertising-free, um, especially an, o- an opening ceremony. Well, coming back uh, to what I, what I was saying earlier with the book, uh, you know, Foul, um, the, the story really, which, uh, you know, reading it, it blew my mind and, and maybe shattered a little bit my sort of, like you sort of said, innocent world of, you know, football is all, all about board kind of stuff. And uh, because I've asked a, you know, colleague who had worked with uh, at the FIFA World Cup in 94 and, and been much closer to FIFA over the, all these years, I said, how much of it is really true? You know, how much is just, you know, again, journalism and making things up here? And he said, Probably about ninety percent of what's written in the book, and so it it, it really destroyed my view, uh, innocent maybe my innocent view of the of FIFA and the world. Uh, now you've been you were right in there, right? And and you, you maybe rightly said you sometimes you, you probably had no idea what was going on. When did you get a sense that things weren't right? Um, was it really only later, or or was it already during the time when you were right in the middle of it? No, no, it was during the time, obviously. Um, you see, it was uh, there was clearly uh, the one side within ISL which ran the business, that was us, yep. and then there was the other side which was responsible or in charge of politics, that was uh, predominantly Jean, the late Jean-Marie Weber. Yes. Um, he, he he always said, uh, I mean, <laughs> we kept using this phrase all over again because it, it was always, whenever you spoke to him about something related to FIFA, it was very political, very, very political. <laughs> I actually remember that. I, 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 know uh, John, I, I knew John, John Murray quite well, and, and he, that's exactly how he sounds. <laughs> yeah, he, he was French for those uh, who didn't understand that little uh, yes. change of accent. <laughs> yes. Anyway. And uh, it was very clear that there were things going on. Um, I mean, Jean-Marie was, he spent probably every day when he was in Switzerland. I mean, very often he toured around the world. It was always funny to see his mountains of luggage, which he carried around. Actually, you couldn't carry it. He always had a cart, you know, from the uh, uh, railway station. Right which he brought up to the office. and uh, But when he was in Switzerland, he spent every day at FIFA House. Mm. Um, and it was, uh, it was kind of obvious for all of us that there were things going on which probably uh, were a little bit on the edge, to say the least. Mm. Um, I, I mean, 
it became very clear to me uh, uh, later on that when, uh, especially in my later uh, uh, years at uh, Prisma Gearsport in front, but the feeling already started that uh, ISL, although, I mean, we had a very close relationship to, to FIFA and we were at that time uh, rather autonomous because FIFA had no clue about marketing or anything of any commercial aspect. Mm. Which, yeah, uh, which well, many federations, I think, at that time, right? If you go back that long, yeah, yeah, um, this was, this, that was the norm, right? They didn't have marketing people. They had federation people, right? They knew how to run, well, sort of, <laughs> the, 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 the sports. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it didn't mean that was just uh, FIFA. But it enabled us to develop programs. You know the, you know the famous uh, FIFA football game from Electronic Sports? Mm-hmm. Sure you do. Yes. That was that was uh, Ross Berlin's and my creation. All right. Awesome. We did we did the first licensing deal with EA with, with EA in '93. Uh, Amazing. So I have to admit I can't quite recall when did ISL go blow up in uh, this was what in the early 2000 right so by that time yeah. you had left already I believe right yeah yeah I left uh, at the end of '96 I mean there was a big uh, dispute between the uh, operative management at ISL and the board of directors, uh, which uh, these guys didn't really know the business, but they thought they know it all. Mm. And uh, people like uh, Stephen Dixon, uh, Peter Sproches, or uh, Tom Hipkins uh, didn't agree with them on uh, many strategic aspects. It was also the time when uh, uh, Peter Sproches actually came up with the idea that we should bid for TV rights rather than the marketing rights, or not only uh, mm -hmm. the marketing rights, and uh, crafted this uh, huge deal which ended up to be a 2.8 billion Swiss franc guarantee as opposed to, I mean, uh, for the World Cup 2002 and 2006 compared to 98 where FIFA generated, I think, 165 million dollars uh, from the, uh, the television consortium. Wow. Yeah. And uh, in order to do that, um, uh, Peter uh, got into talks with uh, with Dieter Hahn, who was at the time the head of uh, DSF, Deutsche Sportfernsehen, yeah. which today is one. And uh, so uh, uh, Kirsch got involved. Kirsch, uh, the Kirsch Group at the time was a uh, was, I think, the largest media conglomerate in uh, in Europe and mm -hmm. one of the one of the major players in uh, in the world yes. media industry. And. Uh, so uh, the plan was uh, evolved over time, uh, really on the background of, 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 these, uh, of these disputes, uh, to really establish a new agency which would be backed by Kier. Right. And uh, so that happened. Kier Sports came in, is it? Or was no, it? That, no, no yeah. Prisma. That was Prisma first. Oh, Prisma first, okay. Yeah, we, so in 97, early 97, we started Prisma Sports in India. Uh, we moved to Zug, away from Lucerne. And uh, it was just, it was the three which I mentioned before, plus uh, John Christick, Michael Frankham, and myself. So we were six, six people uh, who started that, uh, that agency. 
and immediately uh, uh, ISL tried everything to uh, destroy us. Right. Um, up to um, the first six months at Prisma, I acted 100% as a lawyer. Mm. Because uh, we, I mean, they, they sued every one of us. They sued the company. They sent us the police to our premises to wow. search the premises. And uh, I had to coordinate all these lawsuits with our, with our lawyers, which were, of course, Swiss lawyers because it took place in Switzerland. And I was the only German-speaking guy in the company. So uh, <laughs> I took care of all these, uh, of all these uh, lawsuits, which we uh, either won or uh, at the end of the day, FIFA actually uh, really made pressure on, on both sides to, uh, to come to a mutual agreement because they said, you know, it started to become public. I mean, uh, Probably no, it's for sure the only time I made it on the front page of the Financial Times. Right. And, and what was the the dispute about? Was it just because they were worried about you guys knew so much, um, you would take away pro, uh, sort of rides and, and 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 contracts, or you were actually looking to take some of that away? I mean, what was the sort of what was their big fear? No, I think their biggest worry was in conjunction with the TV deal, which had uh, just been signed with uh, with. Uh, with FIFA. Okay. And, but that uh, was an ISL's rights anyway, right? So that, that was a new no. deal, right? In, in essence. Y yes, but it wasn't ISL's rights. You see, one of the board members made the essential mistake just prior to the signing because originally the contracting party would have been ISL. Right. And Kirsch would only have been a guarantor. And then uh, one of the board members uh, got cold feet and said, no way we can take such a volume on our balance sheet. Mm. And uh, he wanted Kiev to become a con joint uh, contracting party. That's how we got really into this deal. And that's why ISL was so terrified. Got it. That makes sense. Now, now just to uh, talk about some numbers here, because, yeah, at that time, as you earlier mentioned already, the numbers jumped dramatically, right? It was the first time I think people really were writing large checks um, for those type of events uh, or, or competitions. Um, now, you know, I don't know whether you, you have some rough numbers of, you know, it, did the gamble pay out? And I know it did from what at least the things I've heard. But, uh, you know, what sort of numbers did, did we end up seeing there? Um, you guys were then generating on the back of it, especially for the TV side of it. Oh, yeah, it worked out uh, in a massive way. Although, you know, the 2.8 billion, it was 1.3 for the 2002 World Cup in Korea, Japan, uh, mm. and 1.5 for the, uh, the World Cup 2006 in, uh, in Germany. Yeah. These were the guaranteed amounts which we had to pay whatever happened. And that didn't include our costs because we were not only responsible then for uh, distributing the rights, but we were also in charge of... Uh, Producing the signal. Oh, okay. Yep, and for that purpose, uh, HBS was founded. With, first was a joint venture between uh, ISL and ourselves with, mm -hmm. a, with a steering committee of six people. These were, these were interesting meetings at that time. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, and uh, I mean, the production alone for the, the Korea-Japan World Cup was something in the area of 180 to 200 million dollars right. which came on top of the guarantee all the other distribution costs whatever we did uh, yeah. uh, came on top of that guarantee so we mm. obviously had to uh, to sell uh, the rights for uh, for good amounts in order to be to, for it for the deal to be profitable to us 
long story short, it was hugely profitable. Mm. That's nice to see when gambles work out. Where, where was the big money coming from? Was it out of the traditional European markets, I'm sure, at that time, right? I don't think the, the rest of the world had really caught up yet, right? Well, uh, it, it depends a little bit. Yeah, it was mainly the big five in Europe. Mm. And uh, that was also, you know, after that dispute which we had with ISL, this contract actually got split into two parts. Uh, Kirsch got uh, Europe and ISL got rest of the world and we were very happy about that yeah that's right that's where our buddy Charlie Charters was selling it in uh, here out of Hong Kong I think yeah yeah exactly right. <laughs> and uh, yeah the, the big money came from the big five in uh, in uh, Europe that's Germany UK France Italy and Spain yeah. and uh, for the rest of the world it was uh, Brazil mainly Right. And, and were you involved in the in the actual negotiations? That what was your role part of that, or you were at a different remit at that time? No, I was in charge of. Well, first my uh, my title was VP FIFA business because I was really the liaison. I was the, the guy who was dealing with FIFA on a daily basis, mm -hmm. coordinating everything. It was later changed to. Uh, uh, no, no, it wasn't VP. It was executive director, and it was later changed to executive director of uh, broadcast operations. Which uh, included the, uh, I mean, we built up the broadcaster servicing department. We started, the first time broadcasters were treated as clients. <laughs> right. Like sponsors, yeah? Yeah. And uh, we also, I, and I was also running uh, the, uh, the production side of it. So I was the chairman after ISL's uh, uh, demise, I became the chairman of the steering committee. Um, And I worked very closely with Francis Delier, who did a tremendous job, obviously. Yep. Um, and uh, we worked out all the strategic decisions. Uh, like we, we, for example, decided for World Cup 2002 to make the production in, in HDTV. And that was the breakthrough for this technology. Um, that's, you always... You always need a major sporting event. That uh, history proves that in order to go one step further. Uh, uh, color telev television, for example, made its breakthrough with the Munich Olympic Games in 74. Yeah. Now, I have a question, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, been selling rights for my whole life here. Um, you know, taking a, something like a World Cup, I mean, I always say, you know, it's not difficult to sell a World Cup, and that's maybe true. Um, what's difficult, of course, is getting these big numbers, right? Um, and no broadcasters like to you know see these rights fees jump um, you know dramatically from one year to the other especially now you guys you know put a lot of money on the table so you had that extra pressure uh, it, talk us through a little bit how you got um, groups to see that you know you have to pay five times six times I don't know ten times more uh, than you previously previously you know what was the real argument there you know it was still World Cup football it was great sporting event it's it's great content that's the easy part but why would you pay so much more than you paid last time um, well, you could basically uh, show them based on, on real numbers that the, the World Cup previously was totally under, uh, undervalued yeah, mm -hmm. okay. because it, it's, it's pretty easy to establish the value of the commercial airtime during a World Cup match, for example, or surrounding a World Cup match. Right. And, uh, and that was one of the strongest arguments, I guess. The other one is a, it, it's very psychological because also compared to the past, obviously the TV landscape changed drastically with uh, private uh, stations coming into play, with pay TV coming into play. 
and uh, the old uh, players uh, from the uh, the broadcast unions, like all the public uh, stations, who used to be, they were the kings, they were the heroes. Nobody could uh, ever do uh, threaten them with anything. And all of a sudden, they saw, oh, there might be competition because it's no longer our own consortium, because uh, but it's a third party agent. Uh, who decides who gets the right. So obviously it became a competition, a competitive bidding process. Correct. Yeah, that's right. And, the European and it's, yeah. and it's for, every, for every broadcaster, the World Cup is, was, and is still is a must-have property because uh, you hardly ever get better uh, ratings than uh, when you show the World Cup or the Olympic Games. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, now, you know, I know you're no longer that much involved in this space and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, the things you're doing now, but, uh, you know, you are very heavily involved in digitization, um, you know, and obviously when you started, it was still very much an analog game. Um, wh where do you see, where do you see where this is heading? Never forget the virus and, and the, how the whole world is currently on, on lockdown. But, uh, you know, where do you see the future of the World Cup? You know, the next few events are coming up. Um, you know, do you see the continuation of that growth trend which started or you see a plateau or, or plateauing it out here? Uh, well, that's, <laughs> that's always a wild guess. I mean, we thought at the time that uh, it can't go any higher anymore and it did and it did substantially of course yeah. I see I'm not sure I'm really not sure how especially the World Cup will evolve with now the change format as of uh, not the next World Cup but 20 uh, uh, 2026 when it will be played with 48 uh, teams because I think now they, they just overdid it the greed just Killed, uh, killed the event. Greed plus politics, as usual. Yeah, of absolutely. Course. But has that actually been confirmed? I have to admit, uh, I, I keep following it, but uh, has that been officially? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's confirmed. That's confirmed. It that's is confirmed. okay. And also, uh, what I don't really agree with is uh, FIFA. One argument FIFA gave was that they. Uh, had a, a study uh, prepared which proves that uh, they would generate something like five or six hundred million uh, Swiss, fr Swiss francs more in revenues. Right. Which I, I question that because if I were a broadcaster, also a sponsor, especially a broadcaster, my argument would be, guys, I'm not going to pay you more, I'm going to pay you less. Because now you want, to, want me to show matches in which absolutely nobody in my country has any interest. I can't sell the commercial airtime or I can only sell it at lower rates. Plus my logistical costs explode mm. because now I have to move around a lot more people on the, in the, the respective country or countries in the case of 26 and we're talking about three countries. And, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of it either. I, I, I never saw, I mean, I can see the logic why it helps him, uh, wherever he will be in power at that time, uh, to get votes because you have more people, you know, you can please with having a slot in the World Cup, all that stuff from, again, pure political point of view. Yes, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, does it really create a better spectacle um, to let, you know, that many countries in, um, which we all know the quality of football, therefore, 
is dramatically different, um, and you, you, you really don't, you're not really talking about the best teams in the world anymore. Uh, yeah. I don't see the logic. Um, there could be more revenue. Uh, that one I wouldn't completely dis, uh, disagree with. But, uh, yes, the cost will blow up, of course, as well, uh, the other way around. Yeah. It's a crazy world. Uh, now, before we move on into the second part here, um, talk us a bit about, you know, then you ended up obviously with Infront, um, and, uh, you know, but there was obviously sort of a, this, this transition, right? Because I think something happened again with, with the rights, and, and that's how an Infront obviously was created. Talk about more about that. Yeah, no, actually, you know, this was a, it, it, it's always, actually always the same or almost the same, same company. It started out as Prisma. Um, later on, Kirsch decided, Kirsch also owned CWL and ISPR in Munich, CWL in, uh, in Switzerland. And uh, Kirsch decided to bring all these three agencies together in one. And, yeah, okay. uh, yeah, that's right. First step was CWL, and that's when the uh, the name was changed. When uh, CWL and Prisma were uh, were merged, uh, the name changed to Prisma Sport uh, to uh, Gear Sports. Got it. And it was Gear Sports until Gear uh, uh, declared insolvency in uh, in March 2002, three months before the start of the World Cup. That was a really interesting uh, period tale. Yeah, that's a vaguely remember that. And uh, then after the World Cup, um, obviously the the administrators of Kirsch were looking for uh, uh, for investors <laughs> in uh, Kirschport because Kirschport was kind of the crown jewel of what was left of uh, a Kirsch, mm. not not indebted and with a huge asset uh, on its books. And uh, so they were looking for uh, investors, and uh, ultimately, the known investors, Robert Louis Dreyfus, together with uh, one of his associates from Munich, and uh, Jakobs, these were the two main investors, basically took over uh, Kiersport with uh, participation of the management, and uh, the name was changed to Infront, but it was still exactly the same company. Right, right, got it. Yeah, yeah, that that all now comes back, and that makes sense. It, now, now, just a quick one: what was what? Why went Kirsch bust? Was it just he overstretched himself in other business areas? It, it didn't necessarily have anything to do with uh, with the football side of it, right? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, that the, the football side was very uh, was very profitable for them. That's why he also wanted to hold on to these rights, and it took really the pressure of FIFA. To have them transfer the rights from Kirch Media to Kirch Sports, mm. um, I can't really tell you. Yeah, he just overstretched, um, uh, especially especially uh, his debt burden got bigger and bigger, and and ultimately, the real trigger was when. Uh, uh, what was he called? The chairman of Deutsche Bank at the time, uh, Breuer or something like that. When he gave an interview on uh, one of the, the American stations, Wall Street News in the morning, and uh, said in public that Kirsch is no longer credit worthy. Mm. That's when uh, I, that, there is a huge, huge lawsuit followed uh, from that, which uh, I'm not sure whether it's, whether it's settled now or still ongoing. Mm. 
I mean, there are still reminiscent, uh, the, the sort of leftovers of all this mess created during the, the Blatter eras and everything else around it. Uh, as I said, uh, what's your, uh, just the, your last kind of thoughts a bit on this, uh, on this era um, now, looking back, of course, and, and I mentioned, you mentioned earlier that you've, you know, you've done some work with Jennings and others. Uh, you know, where, where, is, uh, where do you, how are you now looking back on, on all this? What, what would be your, your take on all this? Um, I am still absolutely amazed that this could go on for such a long time. I mean, it became more and more obvious what was going on, mm. uh, especially when uh, when FIFA started to uh, get involved in the commercial rights and took more and more of these rights uh, in-house. That made them completely uh, exposed to uh, whatever blackmailing uh, operations there were out there. and. Don't forget that the executive committee was an entirely political uh, uh, organ of FIFA. It wasn't the sports was, yeah, at the forefront, um, but in the background there were a lot of uh, uh, other interests going on, mainly uh, monetary interests, of course. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm, I argued for a long time. Uh, that uh, FIFA cannot be reformed, it's impossible, and we see now that it's impossible. I mean, they're going on as they did before, just a bit more, uh, they're just less in the headlines, but I don't think much has changed. <laughs> okay. And uh, That's not good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, sorry, <laughs> hate to say it. But, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, I think you would have to, you can't really reform FIFA, I think you would have to start from scratch with a completely different organization. I mean, there is on the one hand, you don't forget that FIFA is an association under uh, Swiss law and the Swiss association law was basically made uh, to accommodate uh, uh, rabbit breeders or something like that. but it was wasn't thought it for, for uh, big football. For, no, or for multi-billion organizations. Yeah. And I think you would have you really would have to to uh, split the two sides. One, the the, full, the pure sporting side, <coughs> which includes by default political aspects, but completely separate that from the commercial side, and really set up a, a, an entity which is in charge of the commercial side and is run by professionals who know what they're doing. Yeah. I think that's a great point because that, you know, obviously you could argue is it should be the case for any federation, right? They really separate yeah, the, the, the administration side um, the same way you separate the, the commercial side. Um, so you, the two things don't intertwine and you don't use it to, to win votes and, you know, and keep, keep in power, yeah. right? I think which is exactly what will happen here. You see it. You see it when you compare uh, the U.S. to to the rest of the world. American sports is run incredibly professionally. Yeah. Because for them, it's a it's a business. It's an industry. It's uh, what they can make out of it without all the politics. And it works. They yeah. proved it works. Absolutely. Now we we could go on forever. This is such an amazing topic, and maybe we'll do another session on it just to, to dig more. But uh, I do love to talk a bit about because you do you spend you know a very considerable amount of your 
the last uh, 10, 15 years here in a different space. Um, really, I, I, the way I would call it, you kind of pivoted into being an entrepreneur more um, and got involved in a, in a host of startups and other businesses. And, and you know, the, the, the podcast is called The Sports Entrepreneur. So let's let's talk a bit about that side of the business as well, you know, your, your learnings there. Um, and maybe just, just give us a couple of uh, quick ideas on, on where you get involved in and, and what worked and what didn't work here. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I left, actually, I after I left uh, Infront after the World Cup 2006 in Germany, I had one sport which I still would have liked to be involved in. That was Formula One because I thought that was the only of the major properties which hadn't yet fully exploited its commercial potential. Mm-hmm. And I made another. I I had made a project with uh, Paddy McNally, who was. Uh, uh, the guy uh, with the commercial ra- uh, rights at the time, and I uh, made as uh, when I was with Prisma, we made a consulting project with him, mm-hmm. and I approached him again at the end of 2006 because CBC had bought uh, Formula One, right. and I thought I thought it would all be in their interest to uh, really maximize their investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started talks with Patty again. Eventually, was invited by CBC to uh, present my uh, my plans. I was quite honoured because they invited three parties: IMG, WPP, and myself. Well, wow. and I presented them my ideas for the program. Uh, they were all very excited about it, and I thought that was a slam dunk. It wasn't because Bernie said no to it. All right. I was quite frustrated at the and, time. And did you ever find out what, what Bernie didn't like about it? Yeah, I spoke to Paddy uh, several times. Uh, you know, Bernie was very slow in adopting a little bit of strategy. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the Formula One website was... Uh, it was almost embarrassing until Liberty took over. And uh, obviously now puts uh, much more effort into the digital side. But Bernie was very reluctant to touch any of that. I mean, uh, the drivers weren't allowed to do anything on social media and so on and so forth. Yeah. And my proposals were very digitally driven, of course. Okay. Yeah, so, no, uh, I, that's true. F1 had always a very, um, uh, well, conservative approach. That's probably the best way to describe yeah. it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very conservative. Um, so I, um, and I was, oh, at that time I was deep into the digital world already. I was fascinated with all the opportunities, with all the th- new things which came up and all the new uh, aspects you could, uh, you could see. So I clearly wanted to move on in the digital world. So um, talk, talk a bit about then, you know, you had Librovision and Zatu and you, I think you were a bit involved in ESL as well there. Yeah, uh, you know, you know what was the roles and and, and you know how did you uh, you know what was it your your part of it of the of the business? Yeah, I started with uh, Zatu for for uh, first. Zatu was the first uh, uh, streaming platform for linear television. Right. In in which part of the world? It in started. In, it started in Switzerland because Switzerland is very easy. 
Uh, from a rights clearing point of view, you have to make uh, uh, one contract with one uh, collecting society, and then you can put all the stations on your uh, on your platform. Whereas in other countries, you have to negotiate with with each uh, broadcaster individually with all the different collecting societies. I did that in Germany because I was hired to build up the German market. And which I did, and eventually we opened the two in, in Germany with first the, the public broadcasters, uh, later on the, the private channels who were uh, strictly against it at the beginning, uh, joined in as well. But it was also it was a it was really a roller coaster to get it to get it uh, running in Germany with all the. Uh, with all the obstacles you have and with all the you really have to convince people that this, this is the future and they cannot go around it they cannot go into denial hmm. but then but it, it didn't last that long right or, or has it or oh yeah no no it didn't yeah. last for me it didn't last for a lot of so two today is very successful oh it's still around okay sorry yeah, yeah it's that. still around it's very okay. successful it's a great alternative to all the other uh, uh, television offerings you get in these countries because uh, you you pay a very small amount a month to get a lot more channels and uh, in HD quality and you can all stream it on your TV so uh, it's a great offering and they also do a lot of B2B stuff today but at the time um, uh, Satu really needed uh, another major financing round to uh, further develop the company and implement all the plans we had the strategic plans we had and that unfortunately came at the time when the uh, the finance crisis hit the world economy. Yeah, it doesn't need to. Yeah. yeah, and nothing nothing worked anymore. Nobody was was uh, prepared to uh, invest money, uh, substantial amounts of money, and uh, so too had to go over to a massive lay layoff. And uh, most of us uh, were gone because they couldn't pay us. It was a very small group that stayed, mainly uh, engineers, obviously, to uh, further develop the program. And yeah. then they, they, they recovered. They recovered. Yeah, they, they, so they hunkered down and then came back, which, again, talking about the environment we're in right now, where you know most of us probably see that there will be a global crisis of potentially the same magnitude, if not bigger, uh, on the you know creation of this virus here. Um, I think it's an interesting learning, right? So that uh, you know, people can come out of it. It might be painful, but uh, there are ways. I think if you have a good product and if you can really uh, shrink it down, right? I think there'll be maybe a good example, even, right? Yes, yes, and it also it also requires that you uh, admit that you made something wrong at the beginning. You know, the two started as that was actually the real selling point that initially, because it was developed by. Uh, an uh, information technology professor out of uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, University of, of uh, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And he, his point was to prove that peer-to-peer -peer technology works. Right. Um, and it did work, but it only worked to a certain extent. We actually, we overstated the peering factor because it was a maximum of 20%. Right. Okay. And later on, they got rid of that, and they just admitted, "Look, we're a streaming platform now. That's it." Yeah. 
Now, now, like I said, since then you obviously been involved in, in a host of different uh, um, different entities and, and different projects, and, and we unfortunately won't have time to go through all of it. But uh, just pick another one here, which you know you talk a bit about and the learning which comes out of that. The other one, which really is closest to my heart, that was Ogmara. That was a, an augmented reality company, mm-hmm. uh, which. Uh, had a, a proprietary CMS, which was developed, and uh, it was still based on image recognition. But we had huge plans to uh, uh, to further uh, develop the company. And uh, let's face it, for me, AR is one of the biggest uh, uh, technological uh, developments we see right now, yes. and it will be well, huge. It will be huge in the future. And, uh, we've seen it for a long time. A lot of people don't realize that they've been confronted with AR for uh, for many, many years. I mean, take Hawkeye in tennis, for example, yes. or uh, or uh, all the uh, the technology they use in football games to show whether something was offside or not. Right. And uh, but it was Steve Jobs who said, and I think he was absolutely right. No, sorry, Steve Jobs. No. <laughs> uh, his successor, Tim Cook, who said in uh, early 2017 that the that AR is going to be as big as was the introduction of the uh, of the smartphone, mm-hmm. and I, I fully concur with him. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it uh, working on this project. We also managed to acquire clients, but we eventually did manage to acquire uh, sufficient financing uh, to make it sustainable, uh, which I think is the problem for most uh, startups. You run out of money. I have, I you know run out of money. <laughs> you run out of money. And if you really want to implement your ideas, and your ideas have, if you want to do a startup company, your ideas have to be big. Otherwise, don't bother. Yep. Um, but the bigger the idea, uh, the more it costs normally. Yes. It's also a right of timing. It's, it very much matters whether you're at the right time, at the right place, with the right people. Mm. Being successful with a startup for me uh, has a lot to do with luck. Right. Yep, timing, luck. And clearly, sufficient funding is uh, our key components. And I, and I guess from some of the experience you're just talking about, that that's uh, sort of what happened here as well, right? Uh, some of that maybe you, you guys didn't quite have at the right time, right? No, we were premature. Yeah, it's not yet main. Uh, AR is still not well. It's is far away from being mainstream. Right. right. Yeah, it's a bit like our experience with sports fixing and OTT. OTT, mm-hmm. in my mind as well, is is the future of broadcasters. And oh, absolutely. no doubt about it. But uh, whether if you don't have the money uh, like the zone has, it maybe isn't such a good idea to get in there. <laughs> it's what we learned. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's a very good point there. Now, you obviously have your own agency too, um, and uh, you, you know, from the what I can see, you've been obviously uh, doing things on on your own there over those years. So, what what is the sort of projects you're involved in right now? Uh, what is the sort of uh, things you can share um, with our listeners? Um, right now, I am involved in something which I can't really share. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a short one. That's the short answer. But uh, then tell us something you've maybe did before which you can share. Yeah, well, you know, I I use this company mainly for uh, different uh, 
consultancy projects. I mean, at the, the early days of social media, which I started to get into very, very early and, uh, and uh, very thoroughly. And the company had no clue at that time about uh, social media. So in the early days, I did a lot of uh, consultancy projects for uh, for companies to show them how they can implement the social media strategy. And that's still do... in sports, or you are that's it, no. it doesn't matter which industry. It's broader. Exactly. Right, exactly. Right. That was that was definitely broader. Uh, I couldn't do this today anymore because now you have all these whiff kits, and it really has evolved into a a science of its own. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was a it was quite fun time it was kind of a pioneering era uh, where you could play a, a, around a lot more because you had a lot less restrictions from the likes of Facebook and so on than you have today yeah. so what would be your, your sort of your biggest learning from from uh, you know switching from I would say even if it's it was an agency of course but uh, you weren't necessarily the entrepreneur in the agency there Switching then over the last you know ten fifteen years into this world, what was it your maybe your regret? You know what would you would have done differently now in hindsight or, or any of those learnings? <laughs> well, I think the biggest learning was that you don't always get everything presented on a silver tray. Right. Um, what does that mean? Well, we were very uh, spoiled in the in the especially in these times like the '90s, early 2000s, being in the sports industry because uh, the world was your oyster. Right. Well, especially and, when you talk the these big name rights which you had or you were involved with, that's for sure. Obviously, it downscaled a lot, and uh, but it was also it was also. Uh, I also encountered a bigger, greater variety of things, which uh, which I actually quite enjoyed. It was more experimenting, but mm. the risk was that you don't succeed. Right. Yeah, that's what happens when you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's for sure. Yeah, quite frankly, um, after some years, I started to uh, miss the sports world. At the time when I left it, I was really because of all the things I knew and all the things I saw which were ongoing, it didn't, it, your competence didn't matter at the time. Uh, it was really who you were and who you knew mm. and what you paid in many instances. Right. Um, so I was really fed up uh, when I left. Um, but a few years later, I started to, to regret it because uh, it's still probably the industry closest to my heart. Right. Especially with all the with all the new uh, uh, technological uh, opportunities which evolved with the entire digitization, a digitization that made it a completely new ball game, uh, in, in which I would have loved to be part. Yeah, interesting. So, if someone now uh, is looking for advisors who you know have your sort of background uh, from sports, technology, um, you know, media, you know, what 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 is the sort of jobs you know or or consulting you you're interested in? So maybe a little shout out to people here. Um, how would you describe yourself right now? I would definitely uh, say I could advise people in a in a digital strategy capacity. That's something I got into involved with very early on. That's something I'm still. Uh, on top, like I, I follow all the latest trends, uh, developments 
on a daily basis because that's something which I'm really interested in. And I think we will see a lot more now thanks to the crisis which we're going through, which isn't a nice thing, but but it it, uh, accelerates this transformation in a major way. That's for sure. Yeah, and and, uh, and again, just last one. Uh, you still looking at sports at all, or you are currently not really in the world of sports and mostly in in other areas. I'm currently not really in the world of sports, but I very much look at it because uh, I follow uh, also there in particular because it's so close to my heart. I'm a real sports fan. I can watch almost everything, and I'm a real technology fan, despite the fact that I'm a lawyer. <laughs> um, we won't hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> last, my last question here before we wrap it up. Um, you know, looking at you know being in there, obviously been involved in the you know in your early part of your career very heavily in sports, and therefore you would know this this is world inside out, having seen it evolve. Um, now you're in in technology and you're watching that space. Where do you see um, now again using the crisis now? Uh, where do you see the big opportunities for for the te- for technology to come in? You know, a couple just a couple of nuggets where you think this would can be a game changer in the production or in the delivery or in the you know how we make sports look amazing again, even without fans inside. Uh, yeah, that's the point. That's exactly the point. And I think that, that the real big game changer for me now, it was before already, but now it's really on the landscape. That's eSports. I mean, if you, if you, I, I don't know whether you ever watched one of these virtual Formula One races or DTM I watched on Sunday, or uh, we had the Swiss five-year cycling race in Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, with all the, the real protagonists taking place, uh, yeah. taking part in it. Yeah. And it's, it, it's fascinating. The, Absolutely. Uh, the quality you see nowadays it's uh, if you wouldn't know that it's virtual you wouldn't recognize it that's immediately true. that's right yeah, the think, graphics are amazing yeah and i think that uh, that's going and electronic sports in any case uh, has a huge future i mean if you look at how esl developed for example uh, from when i when i worked with them to what they are today it right. just exploded yeah. And uh, I think that's one of the one of the very very big things we will see in the future. Um, I've, I assume we will see more uh, technology, uh, especially on the side of, of augmented reality in sports coverage, more than we already see. I just hope they don't they won't overdo it mm. um, because it can become too much. But uh, the possibilities. Uh, which are there and which become bigger and bigger with the the evolvement of the of the technology itself mm. uh, will be will be very big. I think uh, it, it's a matter. It, it boils down to uh, what fantasies you really have, what you could do, because the technology is there. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, your imagination, you can let go uh, go wild with it. Uh. Yeah. Dominic, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I always love digging into some of the old stories um, of the 90s and, and, and earlier. Um, and clearly you've, you brought a lot of interesting memories back for myself here as well. Uh, so thank you so much for your time here. Um, stay safe there in Switzerland. Uh, hopefully we'll see you back in the, in the world of sports in some fashion again in the future. And, uh, you know, all the best there. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Marcus, and uh, all the best to you as well. 
Thank you. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.